Hello and welcome to Two Girls in a Pod. I'm Sharon. I'm Christy. And we are super excited today to have Professor Ed Cohen on the show today. So real quickly, we're just going to do a little bit of background on Professor Cohen. Yeah, so Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Rutgers University and author of A Body Worth Defending and On Learning to Heal and various other academic publications and also has a practice, Healing Council, correct? Correct. So we would like to welcome you on our podcast today. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And looking up some stuff on you, you, you've got such a vast array of things that you do. So for us, we wanted to know in this journey that you've been on, what are some of the things that are pivotal for you or that you find you like to share with other people? Just to say what a little bit about what my journey has been. Um, as you <laughs> as you pointed out, part of my journey has been uh, academic. I have a PhD in something called modern thought from Stanford University, and I have been teaching at Rutgers in the Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies for the last thirty-five years. But that's one. You know, that's the professional side of my life. The rest of my life. And someone who's been living with Crohn's disease for 50 years. In fact, this is my golden anniversary. I'm very oh, wow. excited. Yeah, exactly. Very excited. Well, I guess it's good when you can say happy anniversary to that because that exactly. means really done well. <laughs> can you just kind of explain Crohn's disease for people who kind of don't know what that is? Yeah. So Crohn's disease, you may have seen their ads on TV for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, their ads for the various medicines that are now available for it. Crohn's disease is an inflammatory bowel disease. It's considered to be an autoimmune illness. One of the increasing numbers of conditions that are attributed to autoimmunity, which just as a side note, it's medicine doesn't know why autoimmunity exists. It doesn't know how to treat it except by suppressing symptoms. And it's basic framework, actually autoimmunity is a kind of paradox. It it really shouldn't exist, but it does. So when I was 13, I was diagnosed with Crohn's. It caused my small bowel to become entirely inflamed. As a result, I couldn't digest food. I had, you know, burning diarrhea all the time. I became, oh, I lost huge amounts of weight. I was undernourished. So, you know, Crohn's can have many different manifestations that can affect the entire digestive tract from your mouth to your anus. And, you know, now basically what doctors do to treat it once it's been diagnosed is, as I was saying before, they try to suppress the symptoms by giving you large doses of various kinds of drugs. Now they have drugs that are called biologics or they're actually monoclonal antibodies. When I was a child, these things didn't exist. So I was given massive doses of prednisone, which you may be familiar with. Prednisone is given for everything these <laughs> days. And if you have a bad case of poison ivy or if you have a brain tumor, you may get prednisone. If you take prednisone, you have lots of side effects. Prednisone is a miraculous drug. It does what it needs to do, but it also does many things that we wish it didn't do. So I grew up basically with all of these crazy side effects that I didn't even know were side effects. I just thought that they were me. So, 
you know, Crohn's is uh, sometimes chronic, sometimes acute, sometimes very acute. You know, people die from Crohn's. I almost died from Crohn's. So it's a bowel condition that I've had the joy of experiencing for <laughs> half a century. Yeah, I, I had read that you had a, a very near death experience in, in your 20s due to that. So, I mean, how at that point did you come back from that? I mean, what was that part like for you? Well, that was amazing and unexpected. And so at that point, I had been diagnosed 10 years earlier. I had been on these high doses of prednisone, which among the physical symptoms, which include large weight gain, there's a famous thing called a cushite face, arthritic conditions. I now have cataracts because of it. There are all of these psychological symptoms, anxiety, depression, mood swings, which when I was experiencing these things, nobody really noticed them because they just said, oh, well, that's adolescence. (laughs) So I now refer to that as my adolescence on steroids. (laughs) (laughs) And then in my early 20s, when I was in graduate school at Stanford, I had my small bowel closed off because there was inflammation. And I was in a place that didn't have a good hospital. So they didn't even have a GI and a gastroenterologist. And as a result, I had a small bowel perforation that went undetected. So when your small bowel bursts, as you may know now, there's an entire menagerie of bacteria, of viruses, of fungi that can leak into your abdominal cavity. And Turns out the abdominal cavity is like a really wonderful place for them to grow and flourish. They're super happy to be there. And I unfortunately developed abscesses throughout my viscera and especially on a blood vessel on the outside of my small bowel, which was unfortunate because at that point I was in Stanford University Hospital, which is a very, very good hospital. And they did every kind of test that they could come up with. But because the abscess was located where it was, they couldn't really find it. And what would happen is it would, at various points, burst. And then I would just gush blood out of my rectum. And at one point, I mean, that happened a few times. And they were trying to figure out what's happening. I was scheduled to go into surgery. But before I went into surgery, I had another massive bleed out that they couldn't stop. So as they were trying to get me to have enough blood that they could take me to surgery and the teams were frantically working around me, I kind of began to have an out-of-body you know, experience and I kind of hovered up in the top of the room and I was looking down and, and I knew something was going on. I mean, besides that there was some emergency happening because I was like really calm and I was like wow this is really amazing and then I kind of realized whoa but I'm not a calm person so (laughs) (laughs) so so like what's going on so eventually they stabilized me enough they rushed me down to emergency surgery and my experience of that was like literally flying down the hall like watching myself on the gurney as we went down the hall And then the next thing I knew, I woke up in the ICU and they had done a small bowel resection. They'd taken out 
parts of my intestine. And then also I'd had massive liver abscesses. So they had to remove those. And then I had to be on a very high doses of IV antibiotics because I was thoroughly infected. And, and during that period of time, when I was in the hospital on these IV drugs and painkillers, and, and I was gradually being weaned off of the prednisone because it's a very, one of the effects uh, or side effects of a prednisone is it impedes tissue repair. So mm. it's not really good if you've just had surgery. That combo, I don't know what it was that was about that, but I started to be able to go into trances and so I could lie on my hospital bed and listen to my music and I would just go into some place that was very filled with light and I could then like sort of just take part of the light and wrap it around the parts of my abdomen that had been excised and you know where the pain was and I just thought of it as pain management and then I could just drop into some place that was not the hospital. It was just some very spacious, not place. And, you know, at first when the nurses would come in and try to talk to me, I was very far gone and they couldn't wake me up and that freaked them out a little bit. So, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but then they realized if they shut off my music, then I would come out of it. And then nobody thought much about it. And I didn't think anything about it really. I mean, I grew up, you know, my parents, I grew up in a Jewish family, but most of my upbringing was dogmatic atheism. My mother was a communist. My father was a physical chemist, really. And my family matter was all that mattered. So I wasn't really thinking I was having like a mystical experience or anything. I was just having, uh, modulating my pain. And then when I finally was released from the hospital, I had an exit interview with my surgeon. And he said this thing to me that just, you know, kind of seared itself into my brain. He said, you are the sickest person I've operated on in five years who's still alive. And he said, I don't know how you got better so quickly. And those two things were just, each was shocking in its own right. I mean, the first part was that, you know, I had been, I was 23. I was in denial that I, I mean, I, you know, I knew it had these experiences. I knew I'd been sick, but I wasn't like, oh, I was really out there. But the second part was even more shocking. It's the first time I ever heard a doctor say, I don't know, especially a very fancy Stanford surgeon who actually was very handsome as well. And uh, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> totally. I'm like, okay. So, and that really rocked me because I was like, oh, he doesn't know how I got better, but I bet it had something to do with those trances. And following that, I when I was you know released from the hospital, then I started having another thing happen, which is when you're withdrawn from prednisone too quickly, you can have psychotic breaks or you can become dissociated. And I became very dissociated, but unfortunately they hadn't warned me about that. So I had no idea what was going on and I knew something was wrong. And I, at one point I just had this like very clear understanding. I was staying in a little cabin in this part of the near the Stanford campus where it was very famous because it was where the Merry Pranksters and all the hippies used to live. It was Ken Kesey had a house on this little street. So I was staying in a friend's cottage and I took a little walk at, at dusk in the woods near there. And all of a sudden I had this experience. I mean, maybe it was like this withdrawal from prednisone. I don't know. But I had this experience where Suddenly I felt like something was present, like 
it felt like the trees, something from the ground. I don't know what, but I had very clear message that was like, okay, you can keep living how you've been living and you can go through this kind of experience again, or you can try to learn another way to live. And I was like, oh, I think I'll try the second because I didn't like the first. Right. <laughs> and that really was, <laughs> exactly. And that really was like really amazing. Like once I had that like clarity, suddenly all these different doors opened that I never would have even noticed before. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I have very, very funny little, you know, anecdotes that happen. Like I knew I had to go to a therapist because I was in a bad state. And one of my roommates was seeing a woman who at the time was known as the, the lesbian sex therapist, Joanne Lulin. And I went to her just because my roommate was going to her. And in every way, she was the wrong therapist for me, except she was the perfect therapist. Because mm-hmm. I walked in, I started saying what was happening. She's, you know, after five minutes, she said, stop said, you're having a prednisone withdrawal. And she said, uh, my sister has Crohn's. She had the same thing happen. And she has been seeing this other amazing doctor that you need to go and see. And that was how I got connected to Rachel Remen. And I don't know if you know Rachel's work, but Rachel's a bodhisattva. She's amazing. And she herself, she was a pediatric endocrinologist at Stanford University Hospital. And she also has Crohn's disease. And she actually, she's like 20 years older than me. So, you know, the things that she went through were much cruder than the things I went through. And the things I went through are way cruder than what anybody goes through now. I mean, it's just, but she, at a certain point when the tension between having an illness and being a doctor became too great, she left clinical medicine and started therapeutic practice for people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses and for, as she called them, recovering doctors. And it was amazing. It was on a houseboat in Sausalito that Alan Watts used to own. And Mm. I mean, it it just, she is amazing. I mean, if you don't know her work, her books, Kitchen Table Wisdom and Blessings My Grandfather Gave Me are both were New York Times bestsellers. They've been translated into many, many languages. And she also subsequently became a clinical teaching professor at UCSF Medical School. And she started a course that's called The Healer's Art that's taught to first-year medical students in like, you know, I don't know how many, many, many medical schools around the world. That's basically reminding doctors that their initial vocation was healing, even though Mm -hmm. what they learn in medical school, really healing is not one of the concepts that that's something that's really central to what medicine aspires to do. So, you know, how I got to Rachel was a miracle, like all of the things suddenly, and then Rachel suggested things. And I mean, once she's the way that I put it in my book, you know, on learning to heal, I mean, basically my book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know is uh, uses my learning curve around healing. And so it, it tells this particular story. But it also just makes a really simple point, which is healing is something that we all know about. If you're listening to this, you're alive, you know about healing. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. And it's a natural aspect of all living organisms. It's one of the things that defines us as a living organism. 
but we don't give it much credit. We don't appreciate it very much. We sort of have forgotten that it's a capacity that we have. And so we go to the doctor and we think the doctor does the healing for us. But if we heal, we do the healing. Doctors can support and encourage healing. That's what they've done for 2000 years. That was the the reason that medicine existed was to support and encourage the natural power of healing. Do you also think that people, when they do go to doctors, therapists, they're expecting them to heal them, you know, and absolutely and forgetting that the bigger piece of that is the investment they have in their own healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a very famous French psychoanalyst, Jacques Lacan, who was trained as a doctor, of course. And he has this phrase when he talks about the analyst or the therapist or the doctor as the subject who is supposed to know. And the thing that's interesting about that is that works in two directions. Like when we go to a practitioner, we suppose that they know something that's happening to us that we don't know about ourselves. So that's our projection, our transference onto them. From their side, though, it puts them in a cage because they're the ones who are supposed to know. And there is this pressure that they should be the knowing subjects. And then that sets up their countertransference, their relationship to the person who's seeking aid, where they assume that they must know something about the person who's before them that the person doesn't know. And really, that's not how it works. (laughs) 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 One of the things I, I always try to make clear is like, you know, I am not criticizing doc practicing doctors i'm not and i'm very very grateful for everything that medicine has done for me i mean i would be dead several times over you know without the interventions but be that as it may you know it's really something that when we receive medical treatment what happens is that not only do we receive a treatment we also receive certain kinds of understanding certain ways of making sense of our experience that are attached to whatever it is that we are, you know, being given to ameliorate our symptoms. So the way that I think about it, like I was on massive doses of prednisone for years and I would just take them every morning, you know, with an after, like an after shot of Maalox, you know, because it would uh, basically prednisone will burn your gut. But it never really occurred to me that I was also, it was sort of like a, a medical communion. Like every day I would take these pills and the pills were supposed to be doing something for me. And, you know, and it's sort of that literally you're in incorporating not just the medication, but the way of thinking that, mm-hmm. you know, the medicine implies. And there are many wonderful things that medicine can do, but medicine actually has a lot of conceptual limits and they know that empirically practically (laughs) doctors know that all the time but because they're the subjects who are supposed to know that's not something that they tell us all the time you know increasingly i mean it's interesting you know over the i've been through a lot of doctors increasingly now doctors are are willing to admit that they don't know which is it's really new i mean i think the internet has a lot to do with that now you know people self-diagnose themselves through dr google and uh then (laughs) webmd Now that you just go to TikTok or, you know. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, actually, yes. No, I know I'm there. I'm getting pressure to start doing TikTok for this very reason. I guess there are these things where you do talk back 
So you could have like the medical expert mm -hmm. and then you can have them. So that's what they want me to do. It's like, talk back to the expert. I'm like, okay. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> like, okay, we'll see what happens. Well, you know, even when you were talking about that, you know, you were talking about, you know, how one thing leads to another thing in, in all of this. And so how did that lead to your, the healing council? Was that a part of that evolution or? Yes. Well, absolutely. When I started on, let's call it my healing journey, although it sounds a little bit, I mean, at the time it was, I was just looking for help and then, but it, it accelerated. Okay. I mean, it's, there was a snowball effect. Let's put it that way. So, you know, I was doing, I was working with Rachel Remen, who then I then started working with a friend of hers. She practiced something or her therapeutic framework is psychosynthesis, which is a kind of transpersonal psychotherapy developed by Roberto Assagioli, an Italian. Well, he was a psychoanalyst, but then kind of realized that analysis was insufficient. So that's why it's called psychosynthesis. So I, I did a psychosynthesis training um, as part of that. Rachel also encouraged me to do start developing more kind of body awareness because basically I'd been so sick and so drugged and so incontinent you know, since I was 13 that I wouldn't say I had a really positive sense of my embodiment at that point. And she suggested that I check out Feldenkrais, which I don't know if you know his work. Uh, Moshe Feldenkrais was a Israeli physicist and an engineer. He had a PhD from the Sorbonne. And he himself was, well, he was a judo master and, you know, kind of sports nut, I guess. He, and he blew out his knees playing soccer. And at the time, everyone was like, oh, that's it. You know, there was no arthroscopic surgery or anything. And he was like, oh, fuck you. So he developed a practice, which is an, an amazing practice. If people haven't, aren't aware of it, they teach classes that are, you know, like yoga classes or like Pilates classes, mm -hmm. not like, you know, I mean, there's also a table work, but they're called awareness through movement. And his, you know, premise was that, well, basically, in a, in a short way, it's like we're much more than we know. But what he tried to show is that we use a really small fraction of our, our neuromuscular capacity. And that most of these kinds of injuries that we get or, or especially through aging you know, problems that we have are repetitive stress problems. We have certain kinds of patterns of motion that are actually not only not efficient, but actually produce friction. You know, and that, you know, you can do that when you're a little kid. Well, you develop that when you're a little kid, because when you're a little kid, your muscles aren't fully developed, your nerves are not fully developed. So we develop patterns of movement that are not the most efficient ways of using our organism. And then they become locked in unless you, you know, become, a, you know, an athlete or a dancer or some other, if you, unless you have training, you know, most of us have, you know, certain kinds of patterns that over time can produce kind of problems. And so he developed a technique that was to help us become aware of how we move and therefore to understand that, that there's a much wider range of possibility that we can utilize in our just in our everyday familiar movements. And if we break out of our habits, there, there's a whole other world of ways of being that actually are probably much more felicitous and and really, I mean, it is an amazing practice. I so I did that also for many many years, and I almost became a practitioner, but 
at the point that I was going to do that, he died. And I don't know, you know, as with many of these kinds of things, when the, you know, the person who was the guru dies, the community breaks up. And so I was, I was like, mm, I don't, I'll stop that. Uh, I don't need to go into the, you know, somebody else's family fight. <laughs> and at that point um, I started working with another kind of practice called continuum that was developed by Emily Conrad and Susan Harper. That's a kind of movement meditation practice that I liked more anyway. It was less structured. It was more imp improvisational. And I've done that for 40 something years. So, you know, so along the way I developed all of the, you know, I, through my seeking my own healing, then I found ways of practicing that were really helpful to me that I then began to incorporate into my own practice. And especially, you know, during the AIDS epidemic, I mean, I was very young at the beginning. Well, I was, I was in the hospital actually when the first CDC reports about AIDS were published. So mm -hmm. I had the wonderful experience of having the infectious diseases team come to my office, uh, to my office, uh, to my room. And they were like, you know, because I was a young gay man living in the Bay Area. And, and they were like, well, there seems to be this new, you know, syndrome that gay men are getting that they have these symptoms of these infectious diseases. And, and, you know, we think it might be sexually transmitted. Is there any, you know, do you think you might have it? And, uh, and my response was, well, not unless you believe in immaculate infection, because I mean, I had been so sick. I mean, and let me tell you, when you're incontinent, you don't really feel very sexy. You know, it's just, uh, <laughs> maybe they should have started with that question. <laughs> I mean, didn't they? I mean, yeah. But, you know, as you know, the, it wasn't until then the mid 90s that the antiretroviral therapies were developed and that AIDS, you know, gradually became less of a, a, a death sentence, as we used to say. Um, and became more of a chronic illness. But so somewhere, you know, in the well, in the late 80s, early 90s, when I moved to New York, I started first volunteering uh, in AIDS organizations, working with people who were HIV positive or had AIDS, you know, because basically I had, you know, this kind of repertoire of practices that, that had been really helpful to me. And I really wanted to share them with other people. And then over the years, you know, basically I, that out of that or starting from that, I put together, cobbled together a, a practice to work with anybody who's interested in healing, could be anything. But, you know, oftentimes, of course, it's, you know, people who have chronic and life-threatening illnesses, because unfortunately in our culture, we tend not to really think about healing until we're really kind of desperate and need something to happen. So, you know, so really my practice is a kind of, um, it's a synthesis of all of these different modalities that I've been trained in and that, you know, I have also benefited from over the years. And it's kind of directed, you know, primarily positively towards the idea that healing is something that we can all do. I mean, basically, my definition of healing is like healing is our capacity as living organisms to enhance the quality of our lives in whatever conditions we're living in. We all live in very different conditions. We all have very different resources. Not everybody can access different kinds of therapeutic possibilities for various reasons, but, but we all have a capacity wherever we are, if we desire healing and we value healing to begin 
to move in that direction, to evoke it from ourselves. To in, for, I mean, I always say invoke it, like call it in. Mm-hmm. And that's part of how we evoke it. If you can't imagine something, it's very hard for it to happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it does happen. <laughs> and I think that's something that's really interesting because oftentimes people are so busy looking outside of themselves for those healing things. And it can be anything. Right. Like you said, that they it's hard for them to stop and look at sometimes what are the barriers that they're putting up to their own healing. Oh, absolutely. Or, or, or the things that they have the capability of doing that they just never realized they could do. Oftentimes because of what other people have told them, you know, or or whatever they buy into, you know, in that whole thing. One of the things we talked about briefly before we started with you is you also talk about that connectedness and healing through and healing through that. Yeah. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? So one of the things that I notice in our world, or at least in our part of the world, especially, we have this kind of crazy way of thinking about what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a person. We think of ourselves primarily as what we call individuals. And the premise of the individual is that we're primarily related first to ourselves and only secondarily to others, as if somehow our self-relation precedes our relationship to other people. Now, that's just like chronologically wrong. I mean, let's face it when you're born, you're completely dependent, you know, that, and when we're born, we don't have an identity. We don't have a self. We have a a biological prime directive, which is something like go on living. In order to do that, we require other people to take care of us. We need to be fed. We need to be kept warm. We need to be cleaned. Because, you know, the kind of species we are is one in which we are born prematurely, right? We all continue to gestate outside of our mother's wombs. If we had gestated any longer, we wouldn't be able to get out of our mother's birth canals. So there's a lot of neurological, muscular, endocrinological, immunological development that continues once we're in the world, right? So so from the very beginning, we are in webbed with others. That That is the primary condition of being a human being. Well, don't you even find, you know, when you just said that, even in my head, I go to the fact that as an embryo, you're attached to. Absolutely. It starts at that moment, you know, because there is already a connectedness to somebody who is outside. Well, you're inside of them, but they're yeah. still, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and there's a great a German philosopher, uh, Peter Sloterdijk, who also says, oh, and then we, we forget the placenta. And he says the placenta is our our first twin, that it's not we are attached to our mothers, but there is also this organ that develops mm-hmm. in utero that is the main support for our capacity to develop. And, you know, now... I mean, in, in some cultures, the, the placenta is very valued and, you know, people you know, do various kinds of ceremonial things with placentas and, you know, healing things in Chinese medicine. Actually, placenta is a very powerful pharmacological agent, right? But in our culture, we throw them away. Well, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> we're mean, done. 
<laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was one of the things that I, you know, I, if I think about things that I learned from growing up with a severe illness and then very luckily, you know, learning about healing and being able to heal in some regard, keep healing throughout is, you know, precisely this sense of that we're always more than we know. We're, we are constitutively more than we know. And like one of the things that like I think about, I was talking to my undergraduates about this and it's like growing up incontinent, the experience is literally, I can't contain myself. And, and when I think about, you know, that, that way of saying it, I can't contain myself. It's like, because the self is much larger than the container, right? <laughs> and like we exceed that. And why do we exceed that? Because, because we are connected to others and our excess is the way in which the other is in us and we are in the other. I mean, that's true just at a really simple level is like language. Like I always try to explain to students, you know, we don't come into the world saying I, 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 I. We don't come to the world saying anything, right? Mm -hmm. we, we learn language. It's a very incredible process. If you've ever watched babies develop and learn mm -hmm. linguistic skills, I mean, it's an amazing process. But the, the way that most infants learn is they don't begin by referring to themselves using the pronoun I. They often refer to themselves using their name, like in the third person, because that's the mm -hmm. way other people refer to them. And so then they are like, oh, you know, Eddie wants milk. Or, and mm -hmm. it isn't until you know, much later in development. And it's a key psychological linguistic moment when a child can actually say I and mm -hmm. use language to refer to itself. That's at, for me, that's the moment at which a self is implanted in us through language. I mean, William Burroughs says language is a virus. And I think that that's like the moment when we're like really infected. But the thing about language is that it comes to us from outside. We don't invent the language that we speak. We don't invent the language that we use to make sense of ourselves. It comes to us from others. The you always precedes the I, right? And then, but once we become an I in our culture, and not all the thing that's, you know, if you know anything about cultural anthropology or history, we know that this is not the way that human beings have thought about what it means to be a, a living being, you know, throughout our evolutionary history. This is a really relatively new way of understanding what it means to be a person. This notion of being the individual. For most cultures, what came first was the group, the clan, the kin, the ancestors, you know. That was what was primary. And it wasn't that people weren't particular. You know, people had their own idiosyncratic. But the understanding of what was important about life was the collective. And there are very good reasons for why that changed in the course of Western history in relationship to the development of capitalism, but in relationship also to the development of the kinds of political systems we have. I mean, it was an important way of breaking free of the rule of divinely anointed monarchs. That was basically how it was invented in the end of the 17th century. And it's been very instrumental, but like any kind of medicine, like the way I always try to explain to people is like pharmacon. In Greek, the word pharmacon, you know, is like pharmacy or 
a pharmaceutical. You know, pharmacon means remedy. It also means poison. It also means scapegoat. So basically the point is, whatever can help you can hurt you. And it can also take the blame, right? (laughs) And so, you know, our sense of individualism, it's a pharmacon. It was a remedy to something, but it's also a poison. And, you know, it carries a share of blame right now, you know, in relationship to all kinds of problems that we have in the world. I mean, global warming is a really good example. You know, in the 18th century, when people began to use carbon-based fuels, you know, to fire up, you know, industrial plants, nobody really thought much about like that we were connected to the rest of the, you know, biosystem. There was, there was no biosystem. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of what they were moving away from. And to begin with, you know, was this idea that God had organized the world in particular kinds of ways. And, and so, you know, so, okay, you could do that for 100 years. You could do that for 200 years. Then then it turns out, oh, wow, ooh, okay. There was something else going on that we didn't really notice before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that happens often. You know, I think sometimes people have these ideas and they do them. And it's so hard to know how that plays out in the future. You can't. Because we don't look to the future. We don't look at those those connections, you know, or I don't think we do oftentimes when we should. If I do this, what does it do? You know, when I do family systems therapy, I always tell people, if you change one thing in the system, other things in the system will change, really? even oh, though they're not doing anything. And I think that's the same when we look at all of these things. There is that connectedness that we have that we do not understand. Absolutely. Well, and apart from understanding or prior to understanding, perhaps we don't really appreciate. We're not curious. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of like the part of the problem. And and part of the, you know, what I talk about in my book on learning to heal. Why, Why do we have to learn to heal? And why is it something that medicine no longer shares with us? You know, that sort of, and it has to do with, how our imaginations are shaped. I mean, one of the things that I try to suggest in in the book is like, there's many ways in which our imaginations are shaped. And and medicine actually for the last, especially the last hundred years, has been a very powerful imaginary technology. It's a a practical technology, it's a material, but it's also imaginary. It shapes our way of thinking. So just like the COVID is a really good example, that the idea of like, what we now think of as like germ theory. Okay, you know, that there are pathogenic microbes that are considered to be the causes of various kinds of infectious illnesses. Well, first of all, that way of thinking only arose in the 1860s and 1870s. And it really didn't fully make sense until the end of the 19th century, because it had a kind of limitation, which is, okay, if the world is filled with pathogenic you know, microbes that we can't see that, you know, can make us sick at any moment, then why aren't we sick all the time? And why, you know, why are we even still alive? In the 1880s, a a man named Eli Meshnikov, who was a zoologist, invented what we now think of as immunology. And he characterized immunity as a form of host defense. So he implanted this way of imagining what it meant to be in the world, what which is that there are these hostile and aggressive pathogenic microbial 
agents that are all around us that are trying to attack us. And in order to fend off that attack, we have an def internal defense system that tries to combat them. So we use these military metaphors <clears throat> to think about very simple infectious illnesses. And that actually is, is not what happens <laughs> any organism. Immunity, in fact, was a, a legal and political metaphor, or it was a legal and political technique for 2,000 years before it got taken up in medicine. It had no medical meaning until Metchnikoff did, made this idea of immunity as defense. And, and actually, the, when he made immunity into this idea of a uh, host defense, it was actually the opposite of what immunity legally meant, right? Because if you're, le if you're immune in a legal sense, you don't have to defend yourself, right? So that's what Donald Trump was saying now. Yeah. It's like he had immunity because he was president, so he doesn't have to defend himself because he shouldn't be legally responsible. So if you, in law, you're immune, you don't have to defend yourself. If you have to defend yourself, you're, you're not immune. But in biology, it's the opposite, oh. right? Immunity is the way we defend ourselves. So they produce this kind of weird, you know, self-contradictory paradoxical concept and it, it became the basis for defining modern medicine. I mean, it is, like I say, it's the, it's the shibboleth, shibboleth of modern medicine. If you are a practitioner, but you don't, like if you do acupuncture, for example, if you're an acupuncturist, for example, in acupuncture, there's no immune anything, right? There's different kinds of energies. There's different kinds of, but immunity is the boundary marker for medicine. Acupuncture can never be considered medical because it doesn't believe in immunity, right? So immunity is like central to, you know, Western ways of thinking. The problem is there's all of these conditions that exist that that way of thinking actually doesn't have an explanation for. So my, the reason I came to this isn't because I had any like genius insight. It's just because Autoimmunity, like Crohn's disease is considered to be an autoimmune illness. Autoimmunity is this crazy thing that honestly, medicine does not have an explanation for. It should not exist, but it does exist. And in, apparently increasingly is considered to be, you know, the effective agent of more and more and more conditions that people have. And so the way that autoimmunity is theorized in the 20th century. So immunity was theorized by a man named McFarlane Burnett as the science of self, not self-discrimination. So autoimmunity is considered to be when the self mistakes parts of itself as non-self and attacks itself. So when I was 13 and they came in and they told me, oh, well, you have Crohn's disease and it's an autoimmune illness. Well, you know, at 13, I had a pretty big vocabulary, but, you know, that was not one of my words. So <laughs> then they tried to explain it to me. And they were like, first thing they said, well, it's like you're allergic to yourself. And I was kind of like, uh, not getting that. So then they said, well, it's like part of yourself is rejecting yourself. And I still was like, okay, that's a little confusing. <laughs> okay. And finally, they said, you're eating yourself alive. Now, okay, I got that, okay? <laughs> but, 
But that was not a good thing to be told when you're 13. It's not a good thing to be told at any time. Oh my goodness. But, <laughs> you know, but what, you know, what I came to realize is like, that was the best they could do because they don't understand what it is. I mean, not, I mean, and this isn't literally autoimmunity is a paradox in immunological theory. So there's five autoimmunity cancer is another constitutive paradox that they don't know something called host versus graft disease, which is, uh, has to do with transplantation pregnancy, right? So why doesn't the maternal immune system reject the fetus because the fetus is not self, right? And then the final one is, uh, something that's become, you know, much more, uh, visible recently, which is the, our microbiome, the flora and fauna that inhabit our mm -hmm. guts, our skin. Like we have more non-human DNA. We have more non-human cells in what we call our bodies than human cells, just that they're really small, right? So they don't you know, exactly. take up room. But, you know, none of those things make sense if you think of the immune system as the system that discriminates between self and non-self, right? So there's this like kind of what I would think of as a paradoxical nature to, you know, what are considered to be autoimmune illnesses. And, you know, that was really like that. It was like trying to make sense of that for myself that led me to start doing historical inquiry into, well, how did medicine come to imagine these things? And then why was my imagination shaped by medicine in these ways, you know, I was told these things that when I was a child, I took in as if they were self-evident. And then later in my life, after a lot of therapy, <laughs> I began to go, whoa, that's not a good way to think, really. And so I think really, you know, our imaginations are shaped in particular ways that limit, sometimes limit our capacity to understand what's available to us. And, and I think one of the great things about therapy or education is to help us to understand that imagination is an incredible resource and that we have access to so many more possibilities than we can consider at any particular moment. And But unless we are open to them, unless we're curious about them, then it's very hard for us to, to incorporate them into the way we live, you know, unless, and this is, you know, what I, you know, I, I hold on to because it's the way I, unless when shit happens, right? <laughs> when shit happens, suddenly your former ways of making sense are not working. And then at that moment, you're like, okay, maybe I should try something else, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's so interesting, you know, as we're getting ready to wrap up with you, is this whole, idea for you you know here you are this adolescent boy just going along you know you have this stuff going on you may think that you know this is just normal because it's what you're experiencing absolutely find out you know this isn't normal you get this diagnosis of Crohn's and it starts you on this journey and the thing that I think is really cool is you've gone on this journey because so many people you you can decide you know when you have these shit happen moments you can sit there you can wallow you can also only think I just have to get myself out of this, you know, who cares about the rest of the world, whatever. But you didn't do that. You took that knowledge and, you know, so much gratitude for the fact that you're paying that forward. 
you're helping other people in their own healing. You're helping educate people about the importance of having that imagination. And, you know, I did uh, play therapy for many, many years. And I would always tell people, when a child's telling you a story, they're not lying. They're using their imagination. We continue to say, I tell people, let them imagine. Go into their imaginary world. That is where great ideas come from. That's where we develop that thing to become more than we are at this moment. And in talking to you and reading up on you, there's so much more of that. And, you know, that's something that we encourage on this podcast is to to become better than you are, to pay it forward. You know, it's about that education of others. And, you know, you've been doing that and for a lot of years now. Is that something you think real quickly as we're, what are your final thought for people? <laughs> final thought. Well, one of the things, like just responding to what you're saying. So I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher for a really long time. The reason that I love being a teacher is I love learning. I love learning new things. And the best thing about learning is that it's sharing what I've learned with others. And I think that I didn't have a lot of resources when I was young. I was in a circumstance in which actually my illness was a way of indicating that there were problems that I didn't know how to make sense of and didn't and couldn't indicate to those around me. But what I then learned was that it, it is possible to live otherwise, that, you know, the conditions within which I I first came into being are very important. And, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes from Karl Marx is, we make our own history, but not in circumstances of our own making. And we're all thrown into the world in different kinds of ways. And some of us have way more privileges than others. And it's really just unfair and unjust and you know and i hope that one day we will be able to live in a world where everyone has more opportunities to to thrive to flourish to to become more than they know they are but wherever we are now we do have that capacity that is an intrinsic capacity to heal to become otherwise than we are to enhance the ways that we live in the worlds that we live to continue to grow and develop until we die. I mean, that's maybe the best thing about like, this is my final thing is one of my teachers says, death will come for us all at some point. When it comes for you, make sure you're as alive as you possibly can be. Oh, outstanding. You know, it's such a pleasure to have you on and for people to kind of go out, read some of your stuff, get a little more education. Because like you said, education, paying it forward, learning, learning is such a huge thing. Absolutely. So we appreciate you coming on and taking the time to educate us and oh. spread some of your knowledge. You know, that's always <laughs> a fun thing for us. We want to thank everybody for listening as always. Very grateful for our listeners and, you know, and reminding everybody to pay it forward and to continue learning. It's an important thing. Yep, thank Absolutely. you.